Well, good morning, Forest View. My name is Nat Evans. I'm the lead pastor here. This morning, we are going to be finishing off our Gospel According to Ruth Lent series. Uh, But before we dive into our text this morning, let's take some time to pray. Heavenly Father, on this Palm Sunday morning, We are reminded of the people who lined the streets as you entered on the donkey, proclaiming, save us. And God, as we look around our world today, and as we look around our lives, we know that we need you to save us. Uh, We think of the violence and terrible things that are happening in foreign countries, specifically Myanmar. Uh, We think of of the violence south of the border, the the terrible shooting where uh, eight people were killed just the other week in Atlanta. And we think about the stabbings in Vancouver just recently. And our hearts, we lament the violence and the death. We lament that our hearts can so easily become hard and jaded as we are overwhelmed with all the brokenness that we see in our world. And even being aware that there are so many stories that we don't hear about, that don't make it into the newsfeed. And so, Lord God, we cry out, save us. And Lord, we pray for those in our community or who are adjacent to our community who are walking through difficult and hard times. Families that are navigating cancer or illness. Families that are walking through infertility. People who are walking through experiences of deep loneliness, of mental health, anger and frustration and fear. We come to you, God, and ask you to save us. We pray that you would speak to us as a community this morning, that we might hear your voice, that you would instill your peace within our hearts, and that we would have the confidence that comes through knowing the salvation that comes through your son, Jesus Christ. We pray that we would be voices of hope in this world where things have so often gone so wrong. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, if you've got a Bible, I want to invite you to open it to Ruth chapter 4. We are going to be concluding our story of Ruth this morning. We're going to be starting at chapter 4, verse 9. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today, you are witnesses that I have brought from Naomi, bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilian, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead and his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from this hometown. Today, you are witnesses. And then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, 
who together built up the family of Israel. May you have a standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring of the, the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The woman living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This, then, is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. What a strange way to end a story. A couple years ago, I've got two young children, and we watched the movie Cinderella, the Disney animated version. It was something I hadn't seen for a long time. Both my kids were young. I thought, hey, this might be a great movie for us to sit down and watch as a family. And for those of you, I think most of you are probably familiar with it, but if you're not, quick recap of the fairy tale slash Disney movie. Uh, Cinderella, she's born, uh, her father dies, and she is essentially looked after by her cruel stepmother and stepsisters. They mistreat her. They make her sleep up in a room all by herself. She has to do all the chores and do everything around the house. Uh, as she uh, grows up, she's made lots of friends with the mice, and she knits them little clothes and sings songs to them. And uh, at one point, the king, he has a pr- or there's a prince who uh, has a ball to find who he is going to marry, which is, I guess, the ideal way to find that special someone. And so he throws this celebration. Cinderella's not allowed to go. Her sisters and her mother get to go, and she's frustrated and disappointed. She's crying up in her room, and then her fairy godmother shows up, gives her a beautiful dress and a carriage and all those kinds of things. She goes to the ball, has a wonderful night dancing with the prince. And as she's leaving, she needs to get home before midnight. She leaves her glass slipper. That is the only trace of her. She runs out without even leaving her name to the prince. The prince begins to search all over the country to find this woman. And so finally, the movie essentially ends with him coming to her house, putting the slipper on her foot and realizing that she is the one. And then it cuts to them getting married, getting into a carriage. And these words appear on the screen, happily ever after. They lived happily ever after. Now, it's a great story. It's exciting. It's interesting. But I can't help but think as I lie awake in night, at night thinking about different things and thinking about this story, I can't think they ended the story at the wrong place. Because what I really want to see is what is life like for them post-wedding? I mean, they've only spent one night dancing it up together. He didn't even know her name. What's that going to be like? And how is Cinderella's adjustment to living in the palace going to be? 
Is she gonna continue to be this compassionate, generous, serving person who's just caring for everybody and helping everybody? Or is she going to grow accustomed to this new lifestyle? And is she gonna go around finding all of the rodents who live within the palace and knitting them little clothes? And what kind of tension is that going to bring into her relationship with her prince husband? These are the questions I ponder and wonder about. Happily ever after. It's how our fairy tales end. It's how, how so many of our movies and stories end. But I would argue this, that the difference between a happy ending and a sad one is where you choose to end the story. In talking with people here, and even as I'm honest with myself, as I read through this story of Ruth, my instant impulse, my gut instinct is to get to this ending and kind of be like, huh? Is that it? It almost feels like a bit of a cheat. You have this incredible story about these two women who essentially lose everything, their husbands, their sons. They are in this place of desperation, just trying to survive. And they walk through this incredibly pain and difficult journey. And then at the end, it's kind of like, oh, it's all better now. Ruth has a husband, Naomi has a son. They're going to be provided for for the rest of their lives. The end. They all lived happily ever after. And there's a part of me as I read this that just goes, this feels so out of touch with reality. I mean, how many of us have gone through experiences in our lives where we've experienced significant loss? Uh, maybe it's the death of someone close to us who we care about. Or maybe it's not a death, but it's some sort of disease or condition. And as you're going through it, your life just has never been the same. And it's hard and it's painful. Maybe it's the loss of a job or a business. Or maybe it's the loss of a friendship or a relationship. Maybe it's navigating loneliness, whatever it is. We all go through these hardships and difficulties in life. And sometimes... There are these happy endings. Sometimes we find someone, sometimes we get better, sometimes things work out, and at the same time, we still carry with us the hurt and the pain from the past. The broken relationship, the loss of that person we love deeply. Maybe it's infertility. Whatever it is, the ending of Ruth can seem tone deaf and out of touch. It's like, I want my happy ending. Where is it? And so often what we can take away from it is that simply this is a story, what well, you just need to trust in God and he's got a nice happy ending in store for you. Just keep trusting and you will experience your happily ever after just like Ruth and just like Naomi. I want to address this particular issue. I want to unpack it and look at it a little bit. But first, I want to play a little bit of a game with you. Uh, it's a game where we get to zoom in and look really closely at different things. So the first thing that we have an image here, I just want to get it up on the screen for you. And so uh, I can't see it right now, but I'm sure you, hopefully you're able to see it. And so in this particular image, 
uh, there is something that you're looking at. I need to actually remember exactly what this image is. You're looking at that, you, maybe you don't know what it is, maybe you do, uh, and so what do you think that is? If you're watching this with someone else, tell them, share with them what you think it is. All right, now let's see the image of what it actually looks like. All right, so there's the zoomed in image, and let's see what it looks like. What are we actually looking at there? And you should see that is a strawberry. Now, it's interesting, when you look at a strawberry, it's something where probably just about everyone here or everyone who's watching knows exactly what a strawberry is, but when you look at it close up, it's harder to tell what it is. All right, let's go to the next image. Now here, this is probably an interesting image for you as you are looking at it. Hopefully this is working. Uh, you are hopefully looking at this image. Uh, might What you're thinking it is, talk to the person beside you. If you have someone here, text someone. What do you think it is? And now here's an image of what it actually is. Let's take a look at that. Yeah, it's the beach. It's going to the beach. Um, and that's what sand looks like underneath the microscope. When you zoom right in, that's what it looks like. All right, let's go to the next image. Here we go. Right there. Can you see it? That is, uh, that is the image that we are looking at uh, right there. So what do you think it is? Talk to the person beside you. Maybe you've got kids in the room. Ask them what they think it is. All right, and now let's actually see if we zoom out what that actually looks like. That's right, that's Velcro. That's what Velcro looks like when you zoom in nice and close. All right, let's go to the next one. We got a couple more. Ah, there, there we go. That one looks, it looks very soft. Uh, and so you can go and look at that. Is that some sort of felt? Is it some sort of fabric? And let's look at that, zoom, uh, zoom out. Let's see what that image actually is. It's the page of a book, the different fibers that are woven together. All right, I think we've got two more. So let's go to the next one. Uh, next up, that looks like the best and worst cereal ever created, both at the same time. It's like nice marshmallows with rocks. Delicious. Um, and so what is that? Guess, take a guess. Oh, there we go. The answer is up there on the screen. Salt and pepper. All right, we got two more actually. So let's go to the next one. This next one, uh, some of you are going, I don't know what that is, but it's disturbing me and it's messing me up right now. I can't handle that. What do you think that is? Tell the person beside you. Again, that's a zoomed in image on this particular thing. All right, let's show people what this is. There we go. Uh, it's the tongue of a cat. So the tongue, uh, the cat's tongue, it, it literally looks like it has thousands and thousands of little tongues on it. Um, just one more reason to stay away from cats. Okay, uh, and, and finally, this last one. Uh, this last one, can you guess what that is? Uh, I think the colors are a little bit off on this one, um, so don't, don't go by those. Uh, some of you are like, oh, that is disturbing, and it's really messing me up. What is going on there? Uh, tell the person beside you, what do you think it is? Let's look at that image together right now. Uh, the, it's actually, that's what an eyelash looks like when you zoom in. Some of you are going, oh man, that person really needs to exfoliate and get rid of all that weird, creepy looking dead skin. Sometimes zooming in is really helpful. It gives us a better picture, a better glimpse of what's going on and what's happening, but sometimes it actually can be a hindrance to understanding what's happening. Sometimes we need to zoom out and see what that thing is that we're looking at in the bigger, broader perspective. I had a dear friend who uh, for a long time worked uh, with World Vision and did a lot of work overseas. And I remember asking him about, hey, how do you, how do you navigate as you're seeing such terrible traumatic stuff happening in 
the world? Like, what do you, how, do you, how do you see God working in the midst of all of that? And he said, well, sometimes you see God up close doing amazing things. But he said, sometimes, sometimes you need to zoom out. Sometimes you need to back up and look at the bigger work that God is doing. I simply say this as we look, as we wrap up the story of Ruth today, is that we can focus on Ruth and Naomi, or we could focus on Boaz, but in doing so, we are actually not seeing the bigger picture of what is actually happening in this story. Because this story is not about Boaz, and it's not about Ruth, and it isn't even about Naomi. They are all incredible characters that we can admire and want to emulate. But the point of the story isn't them. They aren't the hero of the story. The hero of the story is God. And it's not until we get to Ruth chapter four that we start to see what was this bigger story that God is telling as we read through the book of Ruth. Look at chapter four, verse 13. Here's what it says. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. Ruth, her entire life, she has not been able to have a child. She was married to her husband 10 years. He passed away and left her without any children. She was barren. But then we see this story begin to end, that we see that God has actually been working. And it is not just simply happenstance that she gets pregnant. It's not that she finally, that there was something physically wrong. Instead, it's saying, no, no, God enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. Now, this son, we read, is incredibly significant and important to the story. This is not just because Ruth was somehow lonely and she wanted to have a child someday, but this is about a bigger story that God was telling. Look at Ruth chapter one, verse one, just to set the context for the story. We looked at this verse a number of weeks ago, but I wanna return to it now because if we don't have this as essentially the backdrop for the story, we miss out on the bigger story that God is telling. It says this, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Now, the day, in the day that the judges ruled, during the time that the judges ruled, it was a time of chaos. It was a time of unfaithfulness to God. It was a time where the people of God were walking away in disobedience and not going the way of God. And they needed leaders that God would rise up to help them do and live the life that he had called them as his covenant people to live. And yet every time a judge would leave, the people would go back to their old ways. In fact, they would actually get worse. There's this spiral of destruction that we read throughout the book of Judges. It was a time of disorder and chaos, a time when the people of Israel needed someone to rule them with righteousness and justice and wisdom someone who is going to reflect God's heart to them and call them and lead them to be his people. Now skip ahead to the end of Ruth, our very last verse, 
flowing out of the genealogy that is said there for us. It says this in Ruth chapter four, verse 22. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. David was the king that Israel was waiting for. A king who is not simply just a valiant warrior, but a king who had a heart for God. A king who who would help establish Israel to be the people that they were called to be and to shine a light to the world. The story of Ruth isn't about Ruth finding a husband. It's not about Naomi finally getting a son, and it's not about them suddenly being set up well in life so they don't have to go and, and, and scavenge for food anymore. It's about God's covenant to Israel, his calling on Israel to be a blessing to the entire world, to be a nation of priests, to show the world what God is like. And it is a story about their need for a leader for a savior and for a redeemer. And the story, the arrival of Obed, who is the father of Jesse, who will ultimately be the father of David, it points to the larger story about God working through his people in the world. This is why Boaz has such an important part to play in this story. I mean, he he focuses on this fact that, that Ruth, And Naomi, they need a redeemer. They need someone to save them. And this is a bigger, broader picture of what Israel needed. They needed God to work and to save them. This, when we zoom out, is the bigger story that Ruth is all about. And when we simply make it about Ruth getting what she wants or not getting what she wants, or or Naomi getting what she wants or not getting what she wants, we miss out on what this story is really about. It is a story about God's redemptive work in the world. Now, this idea about this bigger story in creation, in history, of God working towards his redemptive purposes is a tough one for many of us in our culture today to swallow. In fact, just this idea that there is some bigger overarching story or purpose or meaning behind the world is a hard one for many within our culture to stomach. I would simply argue this, that there is no, our culture holds to the firm belief that there is no greater story to be lived in. The only story that matters is the ones that we decide for ourselves. And so throughout history in different cultures, there were different major stories that that ultimately would determine what does it mean to live a good life. This is the thing you work towards, you sacrifice for, you give everything for. For some, it was about the pursuit, for some cultures, it was about the pursuit of wisdom. For others, it was about the pursuit of a nation or, or a nationality. Uh, There's different times in history where it was actually about the church. This is why you see these massive cathedrals being built. And that wasn't always a good thing. I don't say that as a defense of the church. There was many misuses of it. But there was this idea that there is some sort of good life that you give everything for, you work towards. Our culture today, I think coming out of the the remnants of both a post-Christian world as well as post-modernism, we find ourselves in this place where 
There is no overarching story. We are cynical and skeptical that there is some bigger, greater meaning. There is some good life that is meant to be lived up towards. Rather, the story that we want to live or that a good life, what a good life actually looks like is deciding for yourself what a good life is and then living towards that. It is one of self-focus. And there are two different ways that I see that playing out. The first one is this, self-focus, a focus on living forever. Uh, Just a hypothetical thing that just recently happened for me. Uh, la, um, sorry, a hypothetical thing, I shouldn't say. Not talking about me specifically. Uh, so there's this YouTube stream that this church does every Sunday, and at different times, it is the pastor's responsibility to get up there and to give a benediction. And so there may have been this one particular time, purely hypothetical, where this pastor got up and decided to recite a passage from Numbers chapter 6, 24 to 26. And uh, it simply goes this, may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. Uh, And then that particular pastor finished, concluded the service and uh, everything was fine. And a few minutes later got a text on his phone saying, uh, you realize that the word is countenance, not continence, because you said continence. Uh, For those of you who have no idea the difference between those two words, I highly recommend a Google. Um, And uh, because you see that and you go, oh, okay, that's a very different blessing. Uh, I simply share all this because this live stream goes out to the world and it is, uh, it is so now forever on the internet. Um, and so when you say these things, when you make these mistakes, they are out there forever. They will live on, I will one day be dead and gone and may the Lord lift his countenance upon you will be there forever. Uh, we live in a culture that even though we realize all of us have finite lives, there's this sort of living into, how can I live forever? It's about legacy. Maybe it's about your family and seeing certain values or things carried on through them. Maybe it's about a business or a certain level of success that you want to leave behind. Or maybe it's about creating something significant and meaningful. We want to live forever, and it's not about creating some or be living into some greater story. Instead, it's about... Uh, carving out for us, putting our dent in the world, our, giving our impact on it so that we will be remembered and live on forever. I actually think that a huge portion of what we see driving kind of this wokeism that is almost becoming a new religion in our culture right now, this, this heart and passion for justice, which there's beautiful, powerful things that just resonate with God's heart in the midst of that. I, I think one of the things that can twist this good, beautiful thing and sometimes in some situations make it very toxic is that this ultimately is less about wanting to see God's heart and see justice reign in our world, but rather it suddenly becomes about people creating a legacy for themselves and identifying, I've got it right, I'm on the right side of history, I made the right post on my social media, whatever it is. And one of the challenges we find is that we need to go back, or this ultimately flows out of this desire about what does a good life look like? Well, it's a self-focus on living forever. And then the second part that I think our culture often does is instead a self-focus on living for the moment. And these ones are easy to see and to identify, at least in other people. They're hard to see in ourselves. Our our drive towards pleasure and comfort, the the, the, uh, elevation of self-expression 
This is why we're having such significant conversations about identity and, and people choosing or simply living into their identity, whatever the proper way to say that is. And it's about our drive for attention. Look at me, look at me, pay attention to me, acknowledge me. There is this self-focus, there's this no greater story to live into except the one that we choose for ourselves. And the only way you know you're living a good life is if you're happy and it's making you feel good. But the story of Ruth and the story of Israel is about the bigger story that God is telling in history. Now, I personally, I can easily relate with both of these two self-focused ways of living. I so easily find myself tempted towards them, drawn towards them. And quite frankly, I think actually the book of Ruth acknowledges this to some degree. I mean, God is eerily absent as you read through the text. I mean, it has characters talking about him 20 different times. The name or various different names of God are used. But when you go through and read through the book of Ruth, well, there's people doing lots of different things, making things happen, doing lots of different things. But God, well, he doesn't really seem to do anything. And that's why it's so significant when we finally arrive at 413 is this realization that God actually has been at work this entire time, throughout this entire story. Look at Ruth chapter 2 verse 20. This is Naomi speaking to Ruth. They, they've discovered that Boaz is their kindred redeemer, and he has shown incredible generosity, essentially saving their lives. And this is Naomi's response. Now, remember, Naomi, she, after losing her husband and losing her sons, her, her view is that God has turned his back upon her. He has given up on her. But this is her response upon the experience that Ruth has with Boaz, she says this, he, being Yahweh, God, has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. This word, again, we've talked about it week after week, but I have to draw attention to it one more time because you cannot understand this book in the Bible without knowing it is the word chesad, which is God's covenant, faithful, loyal, never giving up, always sacrificing and, and surrendering and always risking love that God has for his people and, and ultimately for all of creation. God is constantly at work through this story. And maybe it's partially through the different coincidences and the way things, or seemingly coincidences, things that God sets up. But even more so, we see God at work through his people when they choose chesad, when they choose to live his self-giving, sacrificial, loyal love. God is at work when Ruth says, when, when Naomi says, Ruth, get away from me, go, leave, make a life for yourself. And Ruth says, no, wherever you go, I'm gonna go. Where you die, I will die. Your God is my God. We see it in Boaz and his generosity that he pours out on Naomi and Ruth. We see it as Ruth risks everything and goes to Boaz and, and concocts this amazing, brilliant plan. 
We see chesad all throughout the story as God is working through his people, living out his faithful love in their lives, sometimes in big, dramatic ways and sometimes in simple ways. Our story doesn't end with just simply them getting married and having a baby. It ends with this fascinating thing, Ruth 4, 16 to 17. I wanna draw your attention to it. It says this, then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. Ruth's chesad didn't stop on that night where she snuck in to the threshing floor and offered her proposal to Boaz. When she has a son, she gives the son up to Naomi so that the name of Elimelech, her dead husband, can carry on. That's why the people, they proclaim, Naomi has a son. We see this ultimate act of love and generosity by Ruth. I mean, giving away her son so this name can carry on, that this, this people group can essentially be saved. And so when we zoom out, we see this bigger story that is happening. Now, not only is it simply just the story of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, and not only as we zoom out, it's not just a story of God working through the people of Israel and ultimately arriving at the King David. For those of us who are Christians, we see that there's an even bigger story at play here. Matthew chapter one, verses five and six. We dive into a genealogy of Jesus. And who do we find listed there? Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. Skipping ahead to verse 16, Matthew chapter one. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. And so we have this story, the story of Ruth, the story of Naomi, the story of Boaz, and the arrival of Obed. But we realize actually that, was a, that wasn't even the goal of the story. It was about a bigger story. This is a story about Jesus, the one who wasn't simply going to redeem Ruth and Boaz, or sorry, Ruth and Naomi. This is about the God working his redemption for all of Israel and all of humanity. And just as Ruth in this ultimate act of chesed, sacrificial love, gives up her son so that Naomi can raise him, we see God give up his son, Jesus Christ, for us that we can know and live with him. I mean, there is gospel, there is good news all over this story of Ruth. All of it points to our need for a savior and a redeemer and the sacrificial love of God expressed to us ultimately in Jesus. That is the bigger story that all of us, all of humanity was created to live into. That is the metric matrix by which we figure out what a good life looks like. 
And so to final, to just to conclude, I want to address uh, three things that I think are important to take into consideration because as we live in our, our secular culture, in a self-focused culture, whether it be on legacy or on self-fulfillment or living in the moment, I, I think that it is incredibly important for us to go, well, how do we live differently? What does it mean to live into the story that God is telling through history? I have three things I want to leave you with. Number one, we trust God's covenant faithfulness. So in the midst of a world where sometimes God seems far away, when we're walking through challenges like Naomi of loss and abandonment of overwhelming situations, we continue to trust in the way of Jesus. We don't look to our circumstances to decide whether or not God is there. Instead, we look to the cross and the resurrection because that is how we know that God is there. Number two, we live as embodiments of God's chesed love. Just as Ruth and Naomi and Ruth and Boaz are these beautiful examples of God's sacrificial love poured out to others, that's what we are called and invited to be. And in a world where sometimes it is so hard to see God at work, not because God isn't at work, but I think because we've been given such significant blinders, whether by our circumstances or by cultural assumptions. We as Christians are called to embody and live out that love in the world so that others might see God's presence too. Finally, number three, we find ourselves as part of the larger story God is telling. Now, when I say find ourselves, this is not just something we passively walk into, although that will eventually happen. Rather, it's we commit ourselves. We allow that to be what shapes and determines who we are, whether we're living a good life or not. We, we don't live our life going, well, how are people going to remember me in terms of how much money I made or how successful I was or, or whatever it is, whatever particular cause we want to associate ourselves with. Instead, we go, do people see the story of God being told through my life? Does my life point to Jesus as the Savior, Redeemer, and Lord of all creation? We find ourselves as part of the larger story that God is telling. I want to conclude with this quote. It's from Donald Miller, his book, A Million Miles in a Thousand Years. And in the book, he is talking about his wrestling with this own particular issue, this desire to be like, I want to live a good life, but I have no idea what that means and what that looks like. And so he's reading a book by uh, Viktor Frankl called Man's Search for Meaning. And he talks about kind of the way that this book is speaking to him and what it calls him to. Here's the quote. He says, but Frank, or Viktor Frankl whispered in my ear all the same. He said to me, I was a tree in a story about a forest. And that, it was an arrogant, and that it was arrogant of me to believe any differently. And he told me the story of the forest is better than the story of a tree. So many of us, with our focus on ourselves, we view ourselves as being the significant, the centerpiece, the most important part to the story. And Donald Miller and Viktor Frankl challenge us to see, no, 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 wait, don't misplace your story. 
as being bigger or more important than the bigger story that God is telling. Because he says this, the story of the forest is better than the story of the tree. The story that God is telling in history that you were created to live into and to live for is so much better than pursuing your own legacy, pursuing your own sense of immortality, or pursuing your own sense of pleasure and enjoyment and fulfillment. The story of the forest is better than the story of the tree. Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz, they find themselves living for a story so much better than just themselves. And they invite us to find ourselves in the bigger story that God is telling. Don't miss out on this because it is so much better than any story we could simply live just for ourselves. I want to conclude our time with this benediction in Hebrews. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. May you go seeing yourself as a part of the bigger story that God is telling. And may you go knowing that you were created to be redeemed and saved and to live out this beautiful story in the world. May you go knowing that you are living for something better. Grace and peace to you today.